Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. As we finish week one of our series on 1 Corinthians, we'll discover an important message today from the Apostle Paul on the forces that drive us apart. So let's turn now to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 11 to 17, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfound. I want to begin by reading our text, 1 Corinthians 1, 11 to 17. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, that's our text. Paul is addressing the factions that existed in this church and that divisions rather than unity mark their corporate existence. So let's be clear. No two people agree about everything. And when we talk about biblical matters, we're not going to agree about everything there either. I don't know how many of you have heard the story of two people who had just met, and they had a conversation. And as the conversation develops, Bob asked Ralph, are you a man of faith at all? And Ralph said, yeah, in fact, I'm a Christian. And Bob said, wow, I'm a Christian too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? And Ralph said that he was Protestant. And Bob said, look at that. I'm a Protestant as well. Which denomination do you belong to? And Ralph said that he was Baptist. And Bob was surprised. I'm Baptist too. Are you Southern or Northern Baptist? Well, Northern, said Ralph. Well, no kidding. I'm Northern Baptist. In fact, said Bob, I'm Northern Conservative, Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes region. Well, Ralph looked at him and said, it can't be true. I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. Wow, they stood and looked at each other. And and finally, Bob said, Ralph, now this is a very serious question. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region from the Council of 1879 or 1912? And Ralph said, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And Bob said, well, then die, you heretic. Well, those of us who have heard that story often laugh, and in some ways that story makes a point. It can be possible to agree on major doctrines and become awfully nitpicky about minors. But here's my observation. As funny as that story is, in today's world, it's hardly even true anymore. We're living in a day when denominational affiliation is becoming less and less important to most. Furthermore, the doctrinal variations within many denominations is becoming broader and broader in the present era, and that may be good in some instances, but it may also mean that we think less of doctrinal matters at all. If, for instance, I ask young people a question about their views on eschatology or the doctrine of last things, most of them will confess they don't know. I've heard more than one person say, I'm a pan-millennialist, meaning I just believe that things are going to pan out in the end. Well, that may be fine and well, but in most cases, it simply means that they've been too lazy to really look into the matter. Rigorous doctrinal study, or let me say it another way, a careful examination of various biblical truths have simply not interested many, and we've become more experiential in our faith than biblically driven. Here's what I think. It's possible for us to exercise great care about what the Bible teaches without being caustic or confrontative. 
Here's what's fascinating about the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. The problems with disunity in these chapters, to the most part, had little to do with the truth. Like us, I fear the Corinthians disagree less on content and more on style. You know, it may have been that the Corinthian Christians were influenced by the secular models of leadership in their city. Corinthian leadership style was a personality-centered style. Leaders were often looking to gain power by associating themselves with high-profile figures. And if this is what Corinthian culture was like, it's very easy to see that this influenced the believer's view of leadership in the church. Some feel that the differences in the church may have been the difference of emphasis that each of their leaders brought. That is, one may have stressed one truth and the other a different one, but I find nothing in the text that indicates that that would be the case. What seems far more likely is the place each leader had in the ministry of the church. In 1 Corinthians 3.8, Paul says that he planted and that Apollos watered. Paul's role was to lay a foundation and Apollos was to build upon it. Rather than understanding the unique role that each leader played in the development of their church, the people of Corinth pitted these leaders against each other. Now, what gives rise to 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4 was one little incident. At the time of the writing of this letter, Paul was ministering in the city of Ephesus, and a delegation comes to him in Ephesus, a group of people whom Paul identifies as Chloe's people. Now, we don't know who Chloe is or who these people are, but evidently, the people of Corinth would have known them well. But whoever they were, these people acted on behalf of Chloe, were doing business in the city of Corinth and the city of Ephesus, and they meet Paul in Ephesus and tell him that the church in Corinth is deeply divided. And Paul seems to have trusted their report. He must have known them well and knew they were not spreading rumors or slander. And interestingly enough, he does not hide their identity from the church in Corinth. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and here's what he does not say. It has been reported to me by some people, and I'm not going to tell you who they are, but there are people out there who are really concerned about what's going on in your church. Now, have you noticed Paul never talks that way? He names the concerned party. They are Chloe's people. And the reason I make mention of this is because I am sure that a great deal of harm is done in countless churches by people who criticize and want to remain anonymous. Here's a a word to you. If you want to criticize and want to remain anonymous, I question your motives. If you have a concern, put your name beside the concern. And don't say others feel the same way. You tell who feels the same way, and you let them be interviewed as well. You can't deal with disunity until the concerns are identified with real people. Anything else is simply just so much slander. But the report from Chloe's people must have been true. And because of that, Paul can openly and honestly deal with the individual reasons for quarrels at Corinth. The church was divided into four groups. Those that followed Paul, those that followed Apollos, those that followed Cephas, and those who followed Christ. So even though we weren't there and don't know the exact nature of the dispute, let's see if, as best as we can, piece together the divisions and the reasons for the problems. I call these forces that can drive us apart. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.3 that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, that comes with an interesting assumption, don't you think? Paul assumes unity already exists between all believers, but the danger is that there can be forces that drive us apart or destroy that which the Holy Spirit has created. 
And in some instances, those forces that sometimes drive us apart are not in themselves bad things. It's not that one of the four parties could accuse the other of heresy. All four of these men are good. Two are apostles, one is a great preacher and an evangelist, and one is the Son of God. These are good things. So what happened here? I recognize there's not much information in this chapter, but we can hypothesize just a bit. And I don't think we're going to be that far off the mark. Let's start with the first group. I follow Paul. Here's what we can guess about this group. They were undoubtedly those people who were there first and were won to Christ by Paul. They were probably discipled by him. They were founders of the church, and their sacrifice and love built this church. They were the first responders to the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You could only imagine what those words meant to some. They were in utter darkness when that man came to Corinth and preached Christ and everything changed. These people knew the history of the Jesus movement in Corinth and were there at the beginning. Now, I'm talking about forces that drive us apart. How can something that was so good be a force for division? And here's the answer. Division happens when some people make much of their position. I call this group the I was here first group. We're charter members. And the ones who came after us should have less authority in the church than those who were here from the very beginning. But sometime after Paul left Corinth, a young, bright, and articulate preacher by the name of Apollos arrived. And guess what? Paul actually sent him. Listen to how the Bible describes him. Acts 18, 24, and 25 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And then later on, we get another insight into his ministry. He is sent to Corinth. And we read, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So how could we describe Apollos? Outstanding speaker, articulate, a commanding presence in public, brilliant. He was forceful, a debater, an apologist, and established the credibility of faith in Corinth, for he was able to take the gospel into the public arena and demand that people would listen. See what's wrong with that? Nothing. It was God-ordained. And when we come back, we'll see how people can take what is good and make it a reason for dissension. You know, it's amazing what relevance the words of Paul in these verses really do have for us, the church today. Humanity seems to have this natural bent towards creating divisions and allowing even good differences to form an attitude of us versus them. And Christians are certainly not immune to this tendency. When we return, Dr. Neufeld will discuss the other factors that divided the Corinthians and the applications that we as the church can take away. Dr. John's newest Bible teaching series, The Adventure of Prayer, is available to you this month on CD as our free ministry gift. Have you struggled with prayer? You know it's important, but have always felt your prayer life wasn't what it ought to be. Well, Dr. John wants to encourage and equip you. Prayer ought to be a joy, ought to be an adventure, ought to be powerful, and this five-message series just may change your prayer life. So call us today 
Or if you'd rather listen online via podcast or mobile app, the series is available on all of these mediums so that the maximum number of people have free access to quality, trustworthy Bible teaching. To request your copy on CD, or if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call us right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now here's the question. How could Apollos, this godly man sent by Paul, be the reason for division? Well, Paul himself gives us a hint. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul tells us a criticism some had of his ministry. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. You know, it's amazing how impressions develop, and once they do, people seem to hold them. Paul was the man of letters, of books, of discipleship, of training, but Apollos, now that's the guy you want to show up and hear. And that comparison between the two men seems to form a basis for a faction. Of course, none of us can go back and hear Paul preach, but in every account of it we find in the book of Acts, it would seem he was highly effective. After every sermon, there's either a riot or people repent and believe that seems like an engaging communicator. But it would seem that Apollos was a very gifted communicator as well, and no doubt had a very different style from Paul, and that, it would seem, was enough for a faction. It pitted the I was here first group with the I have more effectiveness group. Now, these folks celebrated a leader who was a lot more impressive in public and took the church to the, quote, next level. Now, could Paul have done that? And then comes a third group, a third force for divisiveness. I follow Cephas, they said. Now, Cephas is simply the Aramaic name for Peter, the disciple. This group followed Peter. We have no evidence that Peter had ever been at Corinth. We simply don't know. But Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and this group may well have been a Jewish group. But whether they were Jews or Jews or Gentiles, I have no doubt that this group connected their faith in Christ with its Jewish root system. For argument's sake, let's call this group the I am Jewish group. And finally comes the surprising group. I follow Christ. A lot of Bible teachers have spent considerable time trying to understand what this group was all about, but I call this group, I am only accountable to Jesus group. You know, I've met people like this. They won't submit themselves to Christian fellowship simply because they only need Jesus. It may, and of course, we're only guessing here, but this group might have rejected apostolic authority. Perhaps this last group is unaccountable to anyone. Now, I don't know, but I think that the longer a church exists, that it's possible for these groups to arise. One group are the charter members, the next are the most gifted leaders, the third are the most intellectual, and the fourth are the most spiritual, and eventually division settles in. You know, people are naturally drawn to people who think like they do. I don't mean here that these people disagreed theologically. Paul gives no indication of that. Rather, they simply had a tendency to be attracted with people who were like them and exclude others who were unlike them. But the Bible makes it clear we are not to tolerate schisms. But how do we prevent them since it seems that schisms in some way are related to the uniqueness of our personality style? I think Paul tells us how. In fact, he begins by asking three questions that are easy to answer, but those answers should lead to a serious reflection about the nature of Christian ministry. 
In verse 13, Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, these are easy questions. No, Christ is not divided. No, Paul was not crucified for anyone. And no one got baptized into Paul's name. But these simple questions lead to some very penetrating implications. Furthermore, the answer to these three questions and the implications for these questions form the basis of the rest of this chapter. To the third question, were you baptized into Paul? The answer is found in verses 14 to 17. I thank God that I baptized none of you except a select few, for Christ sent me to preach and not baptize, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now to the second question, was Paul crucified for you? He answers that in verses 18 to 25. Then the first question, is Christ divided? Well, that gets dealt with in verses 26 to 30. Now, we're going to deal with only one of these questions today, the question of baptism, and leave the rest for later, but the implications are profound. Paul says, learn to think more deeply about your faith. Stop reacting to individual situations and start thoughtfully living out the implications of your faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, says Paul, think about my ministry. I did so little baptizing among you. Does that mean he didn't think baptism was important? Well, read the rest of his letters. Clearly he did. But God did not send him to baptize, but to preach. And God did not make him to be eloquent because if he had, the Corinthian believers might have thought the church was based upon Paul's ability. Instead, if Paul was unimpressive face to face and yet had established a church in Corinth, what was the implication of that? It must mean that the power of the message of the cross was so great that even those who lacked the necessary eloquence were still effective. The effectiveness was not due to the ability of the messenger, but was due to the power of the message. And this is what Paul saw plainly. The ministry God had given him and the gifts and the abilities that God had given him were so planned by God to highlight the power of the gospel. And instead of seeing that, the Corinthians focused on the disappointment that some of them had with Paul. So what does that mean? If the effectiveness of the church depends on the style, personality, or gifts of the leader, you can effect denigrate the cross. And once we see that and the implications of that, it will change our propensity to divide. See, I love what Stephen Olford said. He said, it's my conviction that we are never going to have revival until God has brought the church of Jesus Christ to the point of desperation. As long as Christian people can trust religious organization, material wealth, popular preaching, shallow evangelistic crusades, and promotion drives, there will never be revival. But when confidence in the flesh is smashed and the church comes to the realization of her desperate wretchedness, blindness, and nakedness before God, then and only then will God break in. And I think that's the message of the cross. The cross is a message of weakness and of foolishness and of human inability to save itself. Confidence in human skill is what's dividing the people of Corinth. It is the power of the cross that was the source of their unity, not the style of the leader. And once we grasp that, we can learn to appreciate the varieties of leaders that God gives. All come with strengths and all come with weaknesses. The point is not their strengths and weaknesses. The point is their fidelity to the message of the cross. I would gladly take a struggling preacher who is faithful to Scripture over a gifted leader who does not faithfully proclaim Scripture. Give me a poor communicator with the word rather than a gifted communicator who ignores it. And more than that, 
Give me a communicator who will make the cross the centerpiece of all that he does. See, unfortunately, so many people follow a personality or a gift and are not aware that they have not followed Christ at all. And that's why for Paul, who he baptized, well, that was secondary. That's not to say that baptism is not important. It's a command that comes from Jesus. Jesus submitted to baptism. Yes, so should we. No, baptism is important, but it's not central. I came to preach the gospel, to inspire faith. That was central. See, I say this because it's possible sometimes for Christians to make baptism the center of their faith. That's why Paul baptized so few, lest they think that if Paul baptized them, that's what was important. Instead, the importance was to have believed the message of the cross. Here's what I think. It's time that we as a church divorce ourselves from a personality cult of who is the best leader and embrace a Jesus-centered, cross-centered faith. There has been a cult of personality too long. Yes, we should honor leaders. In fact, we shouldn't persecute them. We should help them along. But we should be loyal to Christ alone. It is Christ alone that demands discipleship, and he alone is worthy of our discipleship. Heavenly Father, I pray for the unity of your church. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would fix our eyes on the cross and not the weaknesses or disappointments in one another. Help us to see what's ultimately important and help us to see what's peripheral so that the cross might be all in all. In your precious name we pray. John, a great message. And what it made me think about is, you know, we really live in a time and in a culture of big personalities, and people are drawn to big personalities. Media supports big personalities. How do we overcome that in the church? You know, Ben, I think there are two equally big problems. One is the big personality that we worship, and the other is the ease in which many churches seem to throw leaders away. And I think both of them are issues. I actually think that the cross answers both of them. We should be thankful for big personalities, but we should never take our eyes off the cross and recognize that the person who serves us is but a servant of Jesus and no more. The issue is always the message itself. And that's also for the weaknesses that we see in leaders. We should be thankful for the weaknesses because the cross covers those. I hope that today's message has blessed you as we understand more fully the factors that drive us apart and strive to live and serve with others in a way that is pleasing to God. Do join us next week as Dr. Neufeld begins our second week of this series, The Power of Christ in a Pagan World, going deeper into the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Time is running short and space is now very limited. So now's the time to decide to join Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and Friends from February 7th to the 16th, 2020 on our Back to the Bible Canada Southern Caribbean cruise. Sail the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas. Visit Aruba, Carousel, Bonaire and more. Specially designed to enjoy all that the cruise line has to offer and be spiritually refreshed and encouraged under the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests Shane and Angela Weeb. 
Come on your own or bring your family and friends. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. But register soon to avoid disappointment. And remember that all the costs associated with ministry vacation events are funded exclusively by the participants and no ministry resources are used for this purpose.